As we uh, come to the word this morning, I want to uh, just share an encouraging story that uh, happened this week. Our newest deacon is a very fine man named Tom Hill. Some of you may know Tom. He often actually sings in the vocal team. You would probably recognize him if you saw him. But uh, Tom has a brother that is just one of these uh, family members who's had a hard life. Lots of things that have been struggles and hard and um, I think in all categories of his life has been a a big burden prayer request kind of thing for the family. And so um, this week, uh, this brother uh, died and the family is so, uh, if I can say it this way, understand what I'm, they're so encouraged because uh, within the last couple weeks, this brother had a real spiritual transformation in his life. They found him in, uh, he, he planted in the gospel of John and was spending time reading there and shared with them that he had just given his life to Jesus Christ. And uh, within a few weeks then, within then just a few weeks, uh, he, he, he died at a, at a fairly young age. And so it's just one of these stories of a, of a hard life, a lot of difficulties. Many of you can relate to this. Many of you have family that you can relate to this. I say this for your encouragement, um, that the Lord can always save us, even at the end. And so that's his story, and, and the, I think the funeral is tomorrow. And you might remember to pray for Tom and his family and, and uh, be encouraged by uh, the story. Well, these messages on the Holy Spirit have been... Uh, enjoyable to me. And I would say a lot of that has been because I can tell that they have been uh, enjoyed by the congregation as well. You know, happy, happy students make for happy teachers and happy parishioners make for happy pastors. And uh, the desire that I sense from our church to learn about the third person of the Trinity uh, has invigorated me in my prep and, and hopefully in my preaching as well. And I think for many of us, this third person of the Trinity has been a little bit in the shadows, a little bit in the theological shadows. We, uh, we understand God the Father. Uh, we, we understand God the Son, Jesus Christ. But this God the Holy Spirit uh, personality, person, has been uh, somewhat nebulous, I think, and probably for any number of reasons. One that comes to my mind is that I think many of us who grew up in the church and grew up with the King James Bible were a little uneasy about the Holy Ghost. When you're a kid and you're told, would you like to be filled with the Holy Ghost? I don't think so. That's okay. Not so much. So, thankfully, our modern translations are uh, translating that Holy Spirit, which is, in our uh, vernacular, closer to what he is, in the sense that he is a spirit, but he is a person. And we have been learning so much about him. We've learned that he really is not to be scary to us. He's called teacher, comforter, and helper. Now, those all sound very uh, warm and inviting, don't they? 
And we also have seen in 1 Corinthians 12 that he is the giver of gifts. And we spent some time in verses 1 through 11 talking about the gifts of the Spirit, which we defined as enablements that the Holy Spirit gives to each individual Christian, allowing us to serve and bless the church. And we spent some time challenging really ourselves and saying, hey, do you know what your gift is? And secondly, are you using it in some way that serves and blesses the church? Because if you are a Christian, you've got one, at least one, probably more uh, enablements. And those are there by the Holy Spirit for the good of the entire congregation. What is yours and how are you using it? That's a past message. We won't spend time on it anymore. Uh, Then we got talking in, in chapter 12, verse 13, about what is called there the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the baptism in the Holy Spirit which we uh, saw is a summary term for all of these works that the Holy Spirit does at the point of conversion. And there is so many. He, he, he washes us clean. We are made alive. We are born again, known as regeneration. Uh, and so it's a summary term for all the things that the Spirit does at conversion that locates us into the one body of Christ. And we spend some time saying, you know, the implications for that are profound. If we are located in the one body of Christ, we have a responsibility to display horizontally what is true spiritually. If we are one in Christ, then I have an obligation to display a unity with every single person who is a believer in Christ. And all the old categories of human division go away. Racism and prejudice and social class warfare and and, uh, educational boundaries and geographical and all the rest. We are one in Christ, praise God. And then the past two weeks, we have spent time studying what is known as the filling of the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit, which we said was to be filled with the Spirit, is a daily surrender of my flesh's desire to control and a submitting then to the Spirit's leadership in my life, essentially control. And we spent time saying, when you think of filling, don't think liquid. Think control. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And so we spent some time talking about why Paul puts those two uh, concepts next to each other. To be filled with wine and to be filled with the Spirit. And we said the reason he does that is that to be filled with wine, the alcohol has a permeating effect that impacts the entirety of the person. The way that I think, the way that I talk, the way that I act, the way that I perceive reality and the nature of things. Similarly, when I am filled with the Spirit, the Spirit now is impacting the way that I think and the way that I talk and the way that I act and my perception of things. It is permeating the entirety of my personhood so that now all that I am is under the control and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So we need to realize that spiritual maturity has to do with being controlled and led by the Spirit. This was one of the confusions in the church at Corinth. They thought they were really spiritually mature. And the reason they thought that was that they had all of these spiritual gifts, some of which were uh, very public and very demonstrative. And they said, hey, we must be so spiritually mature. Look at these amazing gifts that we have. 
And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he goes, I would like to talk to you as adults, but I have to talk to you like babies. That's what you are. And we see from that that spiritual maturity does not have anything to do with spiritual gifts. It has to do with the filling of the Spirit. Which leads into the question, well, how can I know if I'm filled with the Spirit? What does a life look like when it is under the control of the Holy Spirit? Which is why today I want to uh, talk with you about what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. Because the baptism of the Spirit is when I receive the gifts of the Spirit. But that's not an indication of spiritual maturity. That is the filling of the Spirit. But how do I know if I'm filled with the Spirit? Well, it has to do with the fruit of the Spirit. Do you track with me there? I know this is the nine o'clock. I typically have to use small words and talk slow to this service. So are you with me? Because you're not all jazzed up yet. Hopefully you followed that. All right. So let's come to God's word now. And we're in Galatians. We'll be back in 1 Corinthians next week. But we're in Galatians today. Galatians chapter 5. And I would like us to stand for the reading of God's word today. Could we do that? Ephesians 5, or Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. May God bless the reading of his word to us today. Thank you. You may be seated. Now what we see here in this passage is the Apostle Paul is describing a struggle. That if you have been a Christian for any amount of time, you know what he's talking about here. That inward struggle between the flesh, which wants to dominate, it wants to control, and it wants to ruin us. And the spirit now, the indwelling spirit, which as a Christian, I have the spirit of God within me. And these two things are in opposition to one another. And we feel this tension. As Paul says in Romans 7, so that the good that I would, I do not. The evil which I would not, that I do. I don't want to do these things, but I also want to do these things. And I don't want to do these things, but I also don't want to do these things. That didn't make any sense, but you get what I'm saying? We have this, like, tension inside. And that's what Paul is describing here. We have the flesh, and the flesh has certain fruits or things that it produces in us. And we have the spirit, which also has certain works or fruits that it produces in us. Now, let's just very quickly look at the fruits of the flesh or the works of the flesh. And this list is pretty nasty, wouldn't you say? Ugly, destructive. I would categorize them in four ways. We have, first of all, moral destruction. Immorality, impurity, sensuality. 
We have then spiritual destruction, idolatry, and sorcery. We have relational destruction. See if these sound familiar to you in the world that you live in. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy. That's the word, that's pretty much the world we live in right there. Bodily destruction, drunkenness, orgies, etc. And what we see here then is upward, inward, outward, the flesh is an enemy within us that wants to take all of the categories of human existence that God made to be a blessing to us and he wants to destroy them. My relationship with God, my relationship with people, the way that I view myself inwardly, my soul, my heart, it just wants to take that and wants to shred it. Why? Because the flesh is against the spirit. The flesh is against God. And you are a tool. Your life and your relationships and the things that made in the image of God we value is a tool for the flesh to defame the glory of God. So think of that. You have an enemy within you wanting to corrupt all the good things that God has given to us. And I just think that this explains a lot, doesn't it? You might be here today and you're like, in your heart, you're, you're all in turmoil over some family issue. Something in your family that's going on, your extended family, somebody's saying this and something going on. And you're like, why is this happening? Where does this come from? Doesn't this explain a lot? The flesh is in there. Rivalries and envies and dissension, division, and all the rest. How about uh, the temptation that you just cannot seem to overcome? And after you do the thing that you've been tempted to, you're like, why did I do that? I I hate that. And I love it. Why do we give in to these things? The flesh. The flesh is there. How about relationships within the church, your small group or whatever it might be? Some little riff, some little tiff, some little thing going on. Where does that come from? Is that the Holy Spirit at work producing this? No, it is the enemy that is producing these things. You don't have to know very much to know that if there is oil washing up on the ocean beach, that somewhere deep in the ocean, there is a catastrophic failure. So, what is the solution when there is oil on the beaches? Well, let's just keep washing those beaches. That'll take care of the problem. That won't take care of the problem. What do do we need to do? We need to plug the hole, don't we? We need to stop the leak. Now, let me just take this one step further. Let's just say that you figured out, you're amazingly brilliant, and you figured out some way not simply to stop the gushing oil, but actually to transform what is gushing out into something that is good, something that is enriching, some kind of a substance that it gushes out, and when it hits the beaches, it cleans them. And when it hits the birds with oil, it cleans them. And the fish are all clean after they go through the thing that now you've producing that's coming out of it and not just that but when it evaporates it fixes the ozone layer and it helps restore the glaciers and it takes calories out of ice cream and it uh when rubbed on the head of a bald man it makes him look like elvis i mean this would be some kind of a this would be some kind of a remarkable thing 
wouldn't it? In other words, what I'm saying is it's one, it's a good thing to stop the leak. But if you can change it into something that is good, that is even better, isn't it? You'd be a hero around the world. Now look at what the Spirit does. He doesn't just stop all of the nastiness. He transforms it into love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You get it? He's not just stopping the bad. He is producing something that is wonderful in us. And this is known as the fruit of the Spirit. Now, let me point out a few things uh, that we see here. First of all, what is striking here is that the fruit is singular. Okay? The fruit is singular. It is not the fruits of the Spirit. It is the fruit of the Spirit. The gifts are plural. And you remember, when we studied the gifts of the Spirit, we listed, what, all 30 of them that are given in the New Testament? And the idea there is that we can look at the list and say, well, I think I see, a, I see three or four that I, I think that I might have, but the rest of them I don't. I don't need to worry about it because I've got the two or three and everything's great. The fruit of the Spirit is not like that. Those were the gifts, plural. This is the fruit of the Spirit. And the idea here is that all of these characteristics go together to show a life that is lived under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me illustrate it to you this way. Instead of fruit, let's say it was flower. How would we describe a flower? Well, we could say things like this. It's soft. It's vibrant. It's colorful. It's symmetrical. It's delicate. It's fragrant. It's beautiful. Now, I want to assure the men here that I am a man. (laughs) This is a little bit of a more, I don't know, female illustration. But I play golf and do push-ups. So (laughs) I want you to know that. But even if a man was to try to describe a flower... We could come up with these kinds of terms. Now, it would only be one flower, right? But all of these characteristics are true of the one flower. In fact, if you took out any of those characteristics, it wouldn't be the flower anymore. If it, if it was uh, colorful but not symmetrical, or if it was, uh, if it was soft but not fragrant, you wouldn't ha- it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be the flower anymore. Similarly, the fruit of the Spirit, this is a, don't think, well, I got two or three of these and the other four not so much, but I don't need to worry about it. These come as a unit. They are all there in totality describing a life that is lived under the control of the Spirit. Secondly, there is a reason that it is called fruit. Fruit. When... In a fruit's development, is a fruit a fruit? For example, just to put this up. Here we have a slide showing the development of an apple. And we see uh, that it, it, it matures, doesn't it? Now, when is this actually an apple? 
Now, you could maybe argue that maybe at stage A, it's not quite, but maybe a botanist would say, well, technically, all the molecules are there that make up the apple, so it technically is an apple. But you say, well, I think in B, it's already starting to look, in C for sure, it's starting to look like an apple. It's an apple at C, it's an apple at B, it's just not all that the apple is going to be at G. You with me? Now, this is comforting, I think, when we look at the fruit of the Spirit, to recognize that God calls it fruit because he is acknowledging that these are characteristics that grow in us. They develop in us. We are, none of us are at the G stage with that list of nine characteristics. None of us are. And so we can look at that and go, oh, it means I'm not saved. No, it means that we are in process. None of us are all that we are going to be. And so recognize that it is fruit. And we need to say, rather than saying, well, it's not fully there, so it doesn't count, to say, you know what, if it's there in some degree, it means that the Spirit is at work in my life. It is the fruit of the Spirit. God is like a farmer who knows that it takes time to develop these things in us. None of us are instantly sanctified. None of us are instantly like Christ. We grow. We mature. And the evidence of the Spirit within us does as well. John Stott tells a story about um, a guy that, like in the pastor world, would be considered somewhat of a hero. His name's Charles Simeon. He's been dead for 200 years. But he was uh, a pastor in England. Remarkable story. Uh, And to this day is revered as a great godly pastor. You can read biographies about him and, and all of that. Well, here's the thing. In his younger years, he wasn't always this way. In fact, he was known for being... Um, uh, hot-tempered and a, and a proud sort of guy. And the story is told, Stott tells the story, that one day he went to visit this family in his church. And his mannerisms and his way of conducting himself were so atrocious that when he left, the family got together and they just started laughing at him. That's how bad it was. Well, the dad hears the family all laughing at Pastor, Pastor Simeon And he calls everybody to the family garden. And they all go to the family garden. And uh, he says, hey, all right, I want one of you to pick one of those not yet ripe peaches. Pick one of those green peaches there. And they're like, what? What? Why? Pick it. Pick it. So they picked it. And the father said, well, my dears, it is green now. And we must wait but a little more sun and a few more showers and the peach will be ripe and sweet. So it is with Mr. Simeon. And how wonderful it is to realize that all of us are in process, are we not? But a little more sun and a little more rain and we will get there. And Charles Simeon to this day is known as a great godly Christ-like man. So it is with the rest of us. Third thing I want you to see here is that these are qualities that the Spirit produces. They are the Spirit's fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. They are supernatural in that way. Our natural selves cannot produce this kind of character. No way. Now, the works of the flesh, now that I can do fine on my own, don't you think? You look at that list and you're like, I... I don't need any help to create enmity. 
I need no help at all to have sensuous desires. I create idols out of anything. I need no help whatsoever. I don't even need to. How many sermons are preached how to be controlled by the flesh? We don't need sermons like that, do we? We do that quite naturally. But to be filled with the Spirit, now this is a different thing. Here's what I want you to realize. What this is describing is something that only the Spirit can do. We look at this list and we're like, I can't do that. Yes, that's the point. (laughs) The life that is led by the Spirit is a supernatural life. I read this book by Francis Chan about the Holy Spirit. And he says, I want my life to be lived in such a way that the only explanation is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit does things in us. He turns this gushing oil of flesh into gushing oil of goodness. So that the hate becomes love. The sexuality becomes purity. The words become healing. The anger becomes joy. It is the Spirit's fruit. It is not ours. Not that we don't have a role in that, as we've been talking about last week, how to be filled with the Spirit. It is not a passive kind of thing. It is an active pursuit of God's best and control in my life. So we have a role in it, but the fruit is something that only the Spirit can do. This is what Jesus says in John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The presence of the Spirit in us is the Spirit of Christ in us. It is the life of Christ, which then produces slowly and growingly, maturingly produces the life of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, in the way that we live, in the way that we think, in the way that we talk, in the way that we live. So spiritual maturity, my friends, is not a matter of being a Christian for a very long time. I've known Christians who've been professing Christians for a very long time, and they are like the Corinthians, babies. It is not a great resume of service. Spiritual maturity looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I think we need to recognize what spiritual maturity actually is. Is I have seen these kinds of fruit in a new Christian in ways that, in sometimes in ways that I've not seen people that have been professing Christ for a very long time. So let's be a church that can knows what spiritual maturity looks like. It looks like this: it is a life under control. It is the Spirit who produces it. All right, now. This is a message on the fruit of the Spirit. I want to quickly survey the nine. You're like, oh man, there's nine more points to this? Not really. But just very quickly to summarize what these character qualities are like. And we're going to take them in groups of three. So first of all, love, joy, peace. Love, joy, peace. Love here is the headliner characteristic, and we shouldn't be surprised by it. God is what? He is love. 1 John 4, 8. So when God is at work in my life, it's not going to produce hate. It's not going to produce 
division or nasty words towards people, it is going to produce love. God is love. God at work in me produces love. I am drooling, truly drooling over 1 Corinthians 13. We are almost there. And we have this great definition of what real biblical love is. And I think it's going to be a series all its own. So just, if some of you are like, well, we're probably going to just sprint through the rest of the book. No, we're slowing down. Chapter 13, we are going to go slowly through what love is. But listen to what it says love is in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious. Let's see. Love is patient. Have I heard that word here recently? Love is kind. Seems like I just heard that. It's not envious. Hmm. Here's what I think is noteworthy. The definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is almost the same as the definition of a life that is filled with the Spirit here. Why is that the case? Because I think if you get love, if you have God's love at work in your life, you're going to get the other ones as well. It's like, it's like the front pin in, in bowling a strike. You get the front pin, you get a lot of other ones with them. Similarly, when love is there in my life, a lot of these other things you get with it. Love, selfless life, selfless living. Next, we have the little word joy. Now, that's a, that's a desirable fruit, isn't it? I would say if love is the strawberries, joy is the blueberries. Love it. Here's joy. Joy is our happiness in God, creating hap- God's happiness in us. Let me say that again. Love, or joy is happiness in God, our happiness in God, being reciprocated with God's happiness in us. God, God is happy. God is joyous. Within the Trinity, there's all kinds of joy, eternal bliss, joy. And when we are filled with the Spirit, the joy that is God's is created in us. And you've probably heard that there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is dependent on circumstances. Joy is not. And I think that there's a lot of truth in that. But we need to recognize that it is our happiness in God that is then spiritually creating within us God's happiness in us. God gives us joy. Okay? Now, if joy is happiness in God, peace is, is our contentment in God. Peace is our contentment in God. And all that God has been for us in Christ. And all of the promises that he has given to us in Christ. Which are all yes in him, the scripture says. So, love, joy, peace. Here's how, here's how uh, Stott says it. The Holy Spirit puts God's love in our hearts. God's joy in our souls and God's peace in our minds. Who here thinks that's a bad thing? Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I would love to have maturing fruit, those three in my life. How about you? Next, we have patience, kindness, goodness. Let's talk about patience. The Hebrew word for patience is an interesting one. It literally means this, to be long in the nose. Looking around here, I think some of you are amazingly patient people. <laughs> to be long in the nose. Now, why would the Hebrew word, why would they go with that description? Here's why. Have you ever noticed that when somebody is getting really mad, you can just, you can see the redness. It just, it like starts here somewhere and it goes up like this. And if they get really mad, it goes out to their ears. And if they get really mad, it'll, even their, their nose will get red. 
So to be long in the nose means it takes a long time for that nose to get red. Okay? God has a slow fuse. He is slow to anger. He is patient. Interesting imagery, I think, of what it means to be patient. So should we. Kindness We basically know what this is, a disposition to do good to others. The next word is goodness. This is a moral excellence word. I would say it this way. Goodness is what kindness shows up with. If somebody is kind, they show up to somebody else and they are expressing then goodness. So patience is slow to do bad to people. Kindness wants to do good to people. And goodness is what kindness, kind people do. I don't know if that made any sense at all, but you get what I'm saying. All right. Finally, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Faithfulness speaks to trustworthiness. You know, tonight, I shared earlier, tonight we're going to be having a little party, and we're going to celebrate uh, Chris Carr, Pastor Chris Carr, being here for 10 years. Now, we're not just celebrating a duration of 10 years. We are celebrating that Chris has shown himself to be a trustworthy man. We're celebrating the duration and we're celebrating the character as well. A faithful man or woman is a person whose word is gold. They do what they say. They're faithful to their, to their promises. They are faithful in their service. And why then would somebody filled with the Spirit be faithful? Because God is faithful. God is love. So guess what? When God is in control of somebody's life, they are love as well. God is faithful. And so when God is in control of somebody's life, they are faithful as well. It's the, it's the, here, step back a second. You get what this is? This is the life of God and the character of God being born as fruit in our life. That's essentially what the fruit of the spirit is. Okay, back to the text. Now, gentleness. Gentleness. This is a very interesting quality because it is often misunderstood. To be gentle does not mean that we are weak. It's similar to the word, the, the, the word meekness in the New Testament. And you've probably heard meekness is not weakness. And that is definitely the case. Here's what gentleness is. Gentleness is strength under control. It's not weakness under control. It is strength under control. In fact, you see the word used in just a few verses in chapter 6. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It takes strength to confront a brother in sin. It requires gentleness to do it in the right way. And that's the calling that we see there. That's that word, gentleness. A strength of character that allows us to be kind-hearted towards even people we disagree with. I like the story of Chuck Norris. Most of you probably know who Chuck Norris is. Maybe you've heard jokes about Chuck Norris and how amazing he is. (laughs) The young people are going, I heard them. I've heard those. Chuck Norris, uh, I think, is one of the most decorated martial arts guys and like, history. He can't beat Jim Pitts, but he's pretty good. So (laughs) anyway, Chuck Norris, um, the story is told of Chuck Norris that they were filming, uh, Texas Ranger or some movie or something. And, and, um, that evening after the filming, he wanted to relax. So he went to a local bar 
and was sitting at a stool in this bar. And one of these just local yokel guys comes walking up to him. Okay. Comes walking up to him, taps him on the shoulder and says, Hey, you're sitting on my stool. That's my stool. And if you don't get off of my stool, I'm going to get you off that stool. So here you have Chuck Norris. He got up, walked to a different table, sat down, and his friends are like, Chuck, you could have totally taken that guy apart. Why did you do that? And he said, now what would that have proved? I like that story. (laughs) That is gentleness. That is meekness. It's not weakness. It is strength under control. And when God is at work in somebody's life, there is a certain strength of character that they have. But that character is very much under control. That strength is very much under control. Leads naturally then to the final quality, self-control. There is a perception among some people that when the Holy Spirit is really at work in our life, that we are, we're in a kind of of out-of-body experience. We are out of ourselves. We are in a kind of ecstasy. Actually, when we are filled with the Spirit, we are more in control than we have ever been. Our minds are renewed. Our hearts are set on God. Our wills want what God wants in our life. A Spirit-filled Christian, listen has his or her entire life submitted to the will of God. This is not out of control. It is very much under control. All right, so we look at this list now, and I can imagine some of you are looking at that going, (laughs) I don't know about this. That's a pretty tall order there. Who could ever live this way? Nobody's ever lived this way. Whose life has ever looked like that? And my friends, I want to point us now in a moment of amazement to the person of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. This is nothing else than a portrait of what Jesus did every moment of his life. Think of that. Is there any wonder why it is the most remarkable life that has ever been lived? 2,000 years later, everybody's still talking about it. Millions of people gathering to worship him. Nobody can quite get over this life that was lived perfectly this way. Jesus was love always. He was filled with joy. He said this, peace I give, but not as the world gives. So patient as to allow his betrayer, to live with him for three years. And nobody knew but Jesus that he was the guy that was going to do it. So much so that when Jesus there in the upper room says, one of you is going to betray me, it's not like the disciples were all like, well, we know it's Judas because we can tell by the way you've treated him for three years. They all look around and they go, well, who is it? We don't know. Christ knew the whole time that Judas was going to do it. You want to talk about being patient? He was patient. He was faithful all the way to the cross. Shocking kindness and goodness to the outcasts in society, the adulteress, the leper, and all the rest. So self-controlled that he allowed mere men, listen, he allowed mere men to beat him 
and to spit upon him and to flog him and ultimately to kill him. And the entire time he holds the infinite power of God at his fingertips. You want to talk about being under, self, under control? Christ was under control. And I just can't think of a better portrait of the person of our Savior than the one that we have before us. He epitomized all of this. And I just think this is one more reason that our hearts ought to weep and to dance over the person of Christ. A stunningly beautiful life. And Jesus, we just want to say to you right now, this congregation, we want to say to you right now that we worship you. And we love you. And we love the beauty of your life and how you lived it for us. All right, we're in the home stretch here. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Friends, listen. It is the restoration of life as God intended us to live. If we look at this list of the fruits of the flesh, you look at that, does that look nice? You look at that and go, oh, that's the way that I would love to live. Doesn't that look more like, that looks like animals, doesn't it? That's like animal kingdom living. And yet it is the world that we live in. Human beings made for so much more. You are not made to live in immorality. You are not made to live in dissension. You are not made to live for idols. You were made for God. And this life that you were made for was intended by God from the beginning to be this And sin has corrupted it and twisted it and broken us. My friends, Christianity is not just some kind of way to get to heaven. It is an all-encompassing, transformational experience where God, by the Spirit, is recreating in us what he made us to be in the first place. To live with love and to have joy and to experience peace and to have kindness and goodness and to be gentle towards one another. To live under control, to be faithful kind of people. This is human life as God in intended it to be. And Christ came. He came to die on the cross for our sins. He came to pay the penalty for our sins. But he also came to recreate in us what we were made for. This list is life as God intended it to be. And the baptism of the Spirit begins this new life. We are made alive in him. But the Spirit is slowly painfully, slowly at times, recreating in us the architecture of real human living. So that a spirit-filled Christian is like, it's like stepping back into the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, every day of their life was this way. And we now, on the other side of this nuclear spiritual explosion, we're slowly putting it back together again. And the Spirit is doing that in us. So that a spirit-filled home is a family as God intended it to be. And a spirit-filled marriage where if you are blessed to be married to another Christian, husband and wife, you are sinners, the flesh is there, want to divide and create all kinds of conflict. But the spirit is there wanting to create marriage to be what he intended it from the beginning to be. And a spirit-filled marriage is getting there. The church 
A spirit-filled church is a vibrant experience of the recreation of human community the way that God intended it to be. Where spirit-filled individuals get together and treat each other according to these kinds of fruits. And the experience of that is something that is not available in the world. But the spirit is recreating humanity through the church into what God intended it to be. Imperfectly. At Bethel Church. Very imperfectly. But he is doing it. He is creating it in us. And finally, Christian, I'm so glad I, this is, I love this point. I want you to look very, very carefully at this list because this is you forever. This is you forever. This list is not merely a suggestion list while we live here on earth. And then we become something radically different when we get to heaven. Rather, once we get to heaven, we are going to shed this flesh that is wanting to do all these nasty things in us. We get rid of this, and now in, in, in eternity, we are completely bearing the fruit of the Spirit, all of them to the max. So that when we breathe the pure air of heaven, the only inclination that we are going to have is to love. Think of that. Nothing about, well, what about me? Why she get that and I don't get that. All these little things. And you know, we have these thoughts. We have these thoughts come to your mind. Do you ever have these thoughts come to your mind? You're like, where did that come from? Ew. It came from the flesh. No more of that kind of thinking. Total love forever. Maximum joy. Some of you right now, you say, I don't feel much joy in my life. That is life in this sick world that we live in. But it's not always going to be this way. Someday when we die, we are going to step into eternity and it's going to be total joy. Total joy. Think of what that's going to be like. Perfect peace with God and with everybody else. What's that going to be like? Can you imagine living where there's no discord? There's no trouble. Everyone's agreeing all the time. There's no strife. There's no envy. There's no dissension. There's none of this. None of that. Always peace. And nothing but patience and kindness and goodness towards others. And they towards you. How fantastic must that be? Everyone good and gentle towards one another. Every second of every minute of every hour of every day for all eternity. This to the max. That's going to be awesome, isn't it? Think about that. How wonderful will that be? And I want you to think, you know, what are you going to be like then? I'm not going to recognize some of you. And you might not recognize me. I think we're going to walk around for a long time going, what, has, what happened to you? You're so different than you were on earth. And the answer to that is, this is the spirit. Without the flesh, 
creating all of that stuff. This is what I was made to be. This is me perfectly in the image of Christ. And here's the thing, friends. We're not there yet. And you're here and you've got division and enmity and family problems and all the rest. We're not there yet. Our church isn't there yet. None of us are there yet. But whenever we express the fruit of the Spirit here, what we are essentially doing is we are taking the experience of heaven and we are bringing it to earth. Have you ever noticed that? When we see or when we do some act of love that is selfless, purely for the good of the other, there is something on the, in, the, in the midst of doing that in our hearts that says, this is, this is good. And when we see in somebody's life true kindness, a real kindness, there is something that we instantly admire about that. When we give of ourselves to some, but some ish, something, whatever it is, there is this inward sense, hang with me, there is this inward sense, isn't there? There's something inside, and we can't quite put our finger on it. But there's something inside, and it's saying to us that this is the way things ought to be. This is the way life ought to be. This is right. This is good. This is the life of heaven by the Spirit, produced as fruit. In us. It's the fruit of the Spirit. May we bear much of it. Let us pray. Father, we